0: This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit RedemptionAZ.com. We're continuing our series in Mark, and uh, as we do, I want to give you just kind of a a backup for a moment and and, and give us uh, a remembrance of where we're at. We're only three weeks in and then next week, Pastor Wayne is going to be continuing um, uh, through, through Mark, so make sure you're here and uh, excited about, about that. Um, but I want us to remember as we approach Scripture how we should approach that. If, if we approach it with the wrong heart and attitude or even mindset, uh, we can miss what, what God's trying to speak to us. Ways that we can approach it in which we'll miss it is if we just look at this as kind of a textbook where we're going to just gain knowledge. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of good things here, but this is, this is not primarily a textbook in which we go to just gain knowledge. And if we see it that way, we, we could approach it with the wrong hearts and, and to, to kind of get doctrinal things where we can debate people under the table. Uh, but that's not the attitude and heart that we want to have in that. This is also not just a rule book in which we're going to try to find how does God want us to, to live our lives? What are the rules that we need to follow? And if we see it just as a rule book, we'll, we'll kind of miss what What God's doing in this, although there are some rules there and there's some teachings, that's not primarily what Scripture is. It's also not kind of an encyclopedia where if we're going through things in our lives, we just kind of go to A and find what it is that we're looking for, B, C, kind of alphabetical order, and we just try to find and meet kind of a practical need in our lives. What we have to remember about Scripture in totality is that this is a narrative. This is a grand story about God, where God is revealing Himself to us. He's showing us who He is, and He's showing us His redemptive plan and His rule over all of this grand story. And in keeping with that, Mark is writing in narrative form. He's a part of this whole story, but he's writing this book, The Gospel According to Mark, in narrative form. And it's written in this kind of Greek tragedy way. It's not written as just Mark kind of following Jesus around and just putting raw footage of what he did. There is points to what he is trying to show. He's showing things, uh, and, and, and these, these things that he's showing us have points to be preached. It's not just raw footage. What we've been seeing as we've been walking through this book is Mark has kind of a special gift of of brevity. He can say things really fast, he uses the word immediately a lot and it's kind of moving real quickly towards a point, towards a conclusion. Also, he's speaking these things, Mark is revealing these things to a particular people. This book came out in a time when Nero is persecuting the church. There's all of these kinds of uh, deep persecution that people are dying for their faith. And Nero has this arrogant mentality where he's proclaiming himself as the son of God. And Mark, in the writing of this book, is also coming out against Nero in this way, saying, No, this guy, he's not the son of God. And he's revealing through this whole book who Jesus is and the power and the authority that he has. He is the Son of God. He comes out with that in the first verse. He is the Son of God. He declares him as that, and then he proves it over these last few weeks by showing that his his word, he's being whispered throughout all of Scripture. You can see Jesus being prophesied, that John comes, that he's pointing the way to Jesus. John affirms the fact that he is the Son of God. Then when he's baptized, the heavens open and the Father speaks, this is my Son. The Spirit comes upon him and anoints him. There's another affirmation that this Jesus, he is the Son of God. He goes into the desert and he's tempted by the devil. And in that temptation, he shows once again that he's come to overcome sin, to face all temptation, and he... In the proving of this, and the testing of this, he shows again (coughs) that he is the Son of God. And then he comes out of that desert and he proclaims that the kingdom of God is at hand. He proclaims himself to be the king, to be the Son of God. And he calls in this gospel proclamation for all to repent and believe. So then we find ourselves of him after this gospel proclamation going into his works of ministry. Parenting is a, um, an interesting miracle. It is one in which uh, when you don't have kids, um, you look into a family that does and you make statements like, I'll never do that. Some chuckles from parents who made those statements like I did when I didn't have kids and then I find myself being that guy who said, I'd never do that, and then now I'm, I am that guy. I mean, my kids would never act this way, and now they're the ones acting this way. Parenting is a special, uh, unique kind of blessing and miracle. You're kind of going on with your life, and uh, in, in some cases, they come in very surprising ways, But you're kind of building your career, you're kind of trying to maybe build your education or maybe you've just kind of entered into this (coughs) relationship and everything's kind of moving along. And then all of a sudden you find out you're having your kid and then when they come, it is this overwhelming, overwhelming sense of joy and fear at the same time. You know your life is completely changed. And that is affirmed over and over again as you're walking through the life with these children because you're not just birthing somebody into the world. If that's not special enough, and it is, you're not just birthing someone in the world. When you become a parent, whether you're ready or not, you're, you're now training, raising. You're not just babysitting. You have to hear this. There's a difference between parenting and babysitting. You're not just babysitting or protecting or even paying bills. You're training these, these young kids to become adults. You're training them to become men and women. And you see this kind of responsibility unfold. But you sense it. I mean, you can feel it. Everything in your life changes. Everything that you were moving towards, everything that you're pushing towards changes. And and hear hear me on this. It should change. You are now forced to slow down and focus attention on, on somebody who is really far beyond you. I remember far behind you, if you will. They're still learning everything. I remember moments of, uh, of having these kids come in the world and then standing around the toilet cheering as they're going to the bathroom. You're going potty in the toy toy. Oh, yay. And I'm going, what has my life come to? I'm applauding somebody going to the bathroom on a toilet. And I'm not just applauding for their sake. I'm genuinely jazzed. (laughs) You have completely slowed down to where you've gone back to a moment that you'd never even think of applauding somebody on the toilet. But now you're just excited they've made a step and you walk through these kinds of slow process of slowing down and and now training you this is reiterated over and over again as you're asking them to clean the house not just because you can't although they think that's the reason why but if you if you did it you could do it much faster and much better And I think the kids figure that out real soon because they figure if they just act like they don't know what they're doing, finally you'll go, just let me do it. (laughs) But it takes a lot of patience and a lot of time to slow down enough to go, we're not going to just get the house done, but I want you to learn how to do this. Everything changes in life. You Remember the time where you weren't making a lot of money, but all the money you had was freed up to buy yourself new swag whenever you wanted it? Now you're buying it for them and you're you're excited that you get to and, and you're still wearing clothes that you've kind of had for years, you know? all your money, all your time, all your effort has been slowed down now not spending on yourself but on this family that you've been given now not just spending on on frivolous things to to entertain yourself but but because you want to benefit others. Now slowing down and teaching how to do elementary things and watching them grow. The world does not understand this kind of sacrifice. That's why children have now become a massive burden. A massive burden that every time a child comes into the world, most of the time, we're not thinking of this as a good thing. We're thinking, oh, how am I going to be able to do this? That's why abortion is on the rise. That's why there's all of this kind of idea that children are not a blessing. They're ruining my life. I could advance. I could move forward. They're ruining everything. And the reality in this, friends, is the mindset that we live in this culture, but it's also what we swim in. It's also what we end up just believing, not because we gain this insight from Scripture, but even as we enter into the church, the reality is many people are in the church because they think of it as a place to advance themselves. And the minute the community starts slowing you down and you reaching your calling, you bail. If it slows down your advancement financially, if it slows down your advancement in your ministry calling, if it slows down anything, you entering into a community... Slowing you down is not even on the radar. Matter of fact, I've talked to so many people who say they are called and they're not having anything to do with a local church or a local community. And the reasons why is they could do it faster on their own. They could reach their apex. They could reach their goals by themselves. The reality of that is that's not a part of any pattern of Scripture. God shows here, coming out of his first proclamation of the gospel, God shows here that he is committed. He is committed. I want that to go up the screen. God shows that he is committed to relationship with and reflecting himself in community. This is a pattern that God has shown all the way throughout Scripture. When he creates all things, this all-powerful, this all-glorious, this all Wonderful with all authority, God speaks and all these things are created. But this God in perfect community creates man and comes and walks with him and talks with him. And that it is his delight to have relationship with him. And and he gives them responsibility. Not responsibility because he can't do it. But responsibility because of his commitment to partnership with these. This man and woman. And even when they sin. Instead of God giving up on this reality of his commitment to community, he cast them out of the garden. But even in that, when he could have destroyed the whole world, he saves some that he keeps that community and out of that he promises that he'll never destroy the world again and then he brings together Israel and Israel is this constant reminder of God's parental love towards his people that they're constantly wandering and going around in circles and rebelling and God continues to love them and not forsake them. Sends prophets calling his people back to relationship with him and one another. And now, when Jesus comes, he's continuing this pattern. Many people look at the miracles. That Jesus did. And the ones they love to talk about are these amazing kind of miracles that he did. Look at what Jesus did. He heals the blind. The first miracle, he turns water into wine. What does he do? He he raises the dead. These are miracles. But I want to point you to the first miraculous work of Jesus. And that is his bringing together of a community of disciples. If anybody could have said, people will slow me down, it could have been Jesus. If anybody could have said, people will hinder me. I got so many miraculous things to do and I don't have time to stop and train and disciple and bring these guys along. I don't got time for it. I only got three years. That's all I got. But Jesus shows us not only is he not saying I don't have time to, for it, this is why he came. He is so committed to the building of his people into this community. I would say that the greatest miracle, the one we overlooked because we think of it as common, is not the water into wine or the casting out of demons in which of which we're going to look at next week or the preaching or the prophesying, the greatest miracle is the taking of broken, disobedient people and calling them and committing to them and forgiving them over and over again and training them and loving them and using them and living life with them. The three years that he spent in ministry, he gives his whole life to what? This discipling community. Why would he continue this pattern? It doesn't seem to have worked for him. Why wouldn't he have just done it himself? Forget it. Nobody's going to help me. They're always rebelling. They're always going. Why would he slow himself down? Why would he humble himself? Hmm. So many people think that community stops them from fulfilling the calling or slowing them down. But as we're going through this whole book, what we're going to see is that Jesus is training, correcting, cleaning up messes, giving them responsibilities, explaining parables. He's constantly pulling them away and discipling them, and discipling them and working with them. This was the nature of Jesus's ministry. Many of us would look at this and go, this is a burden. But let me just tell you this. We can look at our children and they come in and there's all these sacrifices and burdens. And I could highlight those, but let me make it very, very, very clear. I dread the day my kids leave the home. I dread it. Why? Because I can't imagine life without them. I can't imagine it. It is this overwhelming responsibility, yes, but it doesn't even feel like a sacrifice when I know this is the joy and the aim of life, them being in my life with all these messes and all these responsibilities. Yes, this is life. This is what Leslie Newbegin says in a quote. He's a missionary that, wrote a lot of critique of Western culture. Here's what he says. How is it possible that the gospel should be credible? That people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented in a man hanging on a cross. I'm suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. I am, of course, I am, of course, not denying the importance of many activities by which we seek to challenge public life with the gospel evangelistic campaigns, distributions of Bibles and Christian le- literature and conferences and, and even books as, as this one. But here's what I am saying. All of those are secondary and they all have power to accomplish their purpose only as they are rooted in and lead people back to a believing community. Here's the reality. What has just happened is that Jesus has come out of the desert and he has proclaimed the gospel. He has proclaimed the kingdom of God is at hand. And in a broad stroke into a large crowd, he's declaring, repent and believe. But you don't see any illustrations or any hermeneutic, if you will, any examples, any tangible life of what repentance and belief look like until he goes and grabs his disciples. This is the embodiment of the gospel message. The gospel is embodied by a community. Now, here's what I want us to look at. A couple of things and then we're going to respond to this text. But I pray that we are challenged if we will if you will to understand that when you are called into a relationship with Christ you are called into a community of disciples and often we are going to feel like we're slowing down. But believe me, it is in that slowing down and embedding yourself into the life of a Disciple community, a community around the gospel that you are going to find where life actually is. Let's look at a couple of things. Let's look at how Jesus calls. Jesus calls so differently than any of the rabbis. First, and I will put these up on the screen, Jesus calls his disciples personally. I love this one because here's what you see. Most rabbis, because there were rabbis at the time and they would have disciples, but no rabbi except Jesus, why this was so different than the ways other rabbis would call, no rabbi would go and personally call his disciples. They would have to, if you will, apply to become a rabbi's disciple. But this Jesus, the God of all the world, the one who says he is the Son of God, does something that would seem so humble. He doesn't have people come apply, but he goes and calls them personally. These four fishermen, he goes and calls them by name. He humbled himself. The nature of Jesus' ministry, God becoming man, humbling himself, and coming in and walking with, once again, a picture of the garden, walking with these men. Look, he's just, not going into a crowd full of nameless and faceless masses where he just gets to look in front of a whole crowd and they get to just kind of chant Jesus as he just does all these miracles. He brings people into his life. He knows their name and he gets into a relationship with them. He forms fellowship with them. Also, one thing that's very interesting is that a rabbi would never initiate the fellowship with his disciple. But this Jesus doesn't wait for them to come into the temple. This rabbi doesn't wait for them to come into the temple and apply to be his disciples. This rabbi goes outside of the temple and goes to the fishing grounds and calls them on their ground. Powerful to see that Jesus This king is going into their place of work and he's calling them there. The second thing is this. This call to discipleship that Jesus calls them with no pre-qualifications. This is an awesome thing because many of us, if we look at what it takes to follow Christ, we go, I don't live up. Can you say amen to that? I'm not the smartest, I'm not the richest, I don't have everything in order which is exactly the way you got into being a disciple of a rabbi at that time. You would have to put all of your resume, your qualifications, you were the biggest thinker, the smartest, maybe the richest, you could buy your way into it. These were the kind of people that would become not normal, average guys like fishermen. As we look here, we see that there's a couple of people who are called Peter and John. And this interesting part here is we see Peter and John being called. This is interesting to see that in Acts 4, as they become apostles, Acts 4:13 says this: that when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men, and they were astonished, and they recognized they had been with Jesus. The type of person that Jesus called was an uneducated, this, this, this type of common man. And Jesus goes and and like 1 Corinthians says, he, he calls the foolish to astound the wise. He, he, he calls those who are weak to shame the strong. That he doesn't come in and say, look, put a resume together, show me all of your strengths and I'm going to find the best people. No, he comes and he calls these fishermen. Just hard-working, average men. And he doesn't just call them into a, a system of thinking. The next slide says this. It says that Jesus' call is to himself. He calls his disciples to himself. This is A powerful truth because most rabbis would say this is the system of thinking. Let's look at the law or the Torah. Let's look at this kind of area of study that I have expertise in and you can follow me and I'll teach you this way of thinking, this way of living, this way of thought. But Jesus does something more than just call them to a way of thought. He calls them to himself. He says, follow me. This would... Slap in the face all that they believed about Rabbi because now he is declaring not just that he has a way of thinking but that he is the son of God. He's calling them to himself. The last thing we see is this. He calls them into a formational relationship. I love this because what we have to see is that Jesus is not just calling them and saying, I like Tang Week because I see your potential. No, he says, follow me and I will what? Make you fishers of men. There's a couple of things that I really like about this. One is that he doesn't just say, follow me, and you got to live up to these standards, and if you try really hard, then I'll, I'll, I'll make you one of my disciples. No, he says, follow me and I'll make you into what I'm calling you into. He has a commitment, not just to them and relationship. He has a commitment to forming them and raising them. Listen, when we understand what God has called us into, even just as parents, but I want to take it broader as a community, these kinds of relationships that we are in are are not just when we have children and bring them into our home, but we're called to raise them and form them and and invest in them. When we come into community with one another, it's a formational relationship. It's not just about everybody coming in and being perfect. means we've got to invest in those relationships. That means he's saying to them, I know that you are messy. I know that you are common men. I know that you don't get everything right now. I know that you're not have everything together, but I'm committing to you and I'm committing to making you. I hope you can hear that in Jesus' call, he's saying, Not only have I chosen you, but I'm going to equip you. I'm going to form you. This kind of call is so beautiful. It's so radical. That when we get this sense of Jesus calling us into a relationship with him, we have to hear all of these elements that Jesus is personally calling us. That he's not calling us because of anything we have done. It's not by our merit. You didn't reach some level and Jesus is like, you made the grade. You could be my follower now. He's not just calling you to a system of thought or a list of doctrines. He's calling you into himself. That you would know him and love him and follow him. And hear me on this. He's not just calling you without saying, I will make you. And much of our fears as we hear Jesus calling us into a relationship with him, much of it is, I don't know if I can do it. He's acknowledging you won't be able to without my help. The beauty of this is, even when Jesus ascends and spends all of these years, he affirms this same thing when he says, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what he says, I'll be with you always he affirms the fact that he's not going to leave them he's going to continue to form them and make them can you hear the beauty of this kind of call and then immediately in the middle of this beautiful call into a community relationship with him and one another these disciples do what he called everyone to do in the verse before repent and believe. Hmm. Here's what I want you to notice. Jesus didn't come and said leave your nets and leave your families and go into full-time ministry. It's not what he said. What he said was follow me and I will make you. This call was a call to following him and that beautiful call of a relationship and a formation and a continued commitment to one another caused them to do radical responses. They left their nets. They left their families. And some of us go, look at, look at the radical obedience. We love to focus. Look at what they dropped. Look at what they left behind. Now here's I—a couple of things I want to challenge on that. When a lot of people preach this text, they highlight all the things that have to be dropped in order for you to be a disciple. I just want to push back on it a little bit that although I do believe that following Christ requires radical sacrifice and obedience, the call is far more beautiful. It's like finding a pearl in a field that you find and you joyfully sell it all. Why? To get that pearl. What you're gaining in Christ is far more. But here's what I want you to see. Some of them think, well, they left their nets. They just left their jobs. And they left their families. Much of that was the original call, but none of it shows over the three years how much time they did. Not, not much of it talks about the day in and day out of how they spent their lives. Did they leave their families? Did they leave their wives and husbands? Did they walk away from it all and and never go back to it? No, that actually shows times where they were in homes with their families. Some Something Peter was, was married at the time. Did he leave his wife? Did he walk away? No, actually, in other parts it talks about Peter traveling as an apostle with his family and the church providing for it. There's other times where Jesus is doing ministry on a boat with fish, with nets. The disciples are even using their own nets of fish. And even some commentators say that Jesus used the resources of these fishermen to do his ministry. So did they just leave their nets or did they, was there something that Jesus is showing us here? Isn't it amazing that he goes to the grounds where fishermen are at, and in that place where these fishermen are, he calls them to follow him, and he will make them fishers of men. Now, I don't want to make too much of this, but I think it's powerful that he goes to fishermen and says he's going to make them fishers of men. Why? Why? Because he's taking a language and a skill set and a gift and all the things that God has fashioned them and formed them and he comes in it and says, Look, all these things that you have been doing for profit, for gain, for your own glory, all these things, this fishing that you've been doing, I'm going to take it and repurpose it. You're still going to fish, but now you're going to do it for men, for my glory. Notice he takes their vocation and even makes it something that they can relate to the type of ministry that he's calling them into. I love that Jesus is calling them to follow him. And here's what we, ca- this is what we could miss if we kind of categorize it, that this is what it means. We got to quit our jobs. We need to walk away from everything. though. No, what we see here is this, a radical reorientation of their whole lives. That everything about them, their vocation, their family, everything now is centered around the person and work of Jesus. Now everything they do is for their glory. All their finances is for His glory. All their families are lived for His glory. Everything about their lives is centered around the person and work of Jesus. Notice this, church, that the radical response is a leaving behind and a reorientation of life. Now I know that as we hear this call, the come follow me and I will make you is a radical call. It's a powerful call. So I don't want to dumb down your response and say, you don't need to radically respond. But what I do want to do is understand that in this room, the come and follow me and I will make you is going to be different. It's going to look different for every person in this room, but what won't look different is this. Your life completely reoriented around the person and work of Jesus. Your job around the person and work of Jesus. Your finances Around the person and work of Jesus. Your community around the person and work of Jesus. Your mission in this world around the person and work of Jesus. Everything in life is radically reoriented around his work. This is what that gospel proclamation of the kingdom is at hand. Come and repent and believe. This is what repentance and belief looks like. It looks like reorienting your whole life around the person and work of Jesus. I'm going to ask you to do something. Bow your heads and close your eyes. And I'm going to ask that the Holy Spirit would begin to speak. Because what I'm praying for as the band comes and as we go into this time of prayer, communion, is this. I'm going to ask you some questions just to to get you to think. Because what I'm hoping is that these words will come from God's word and will echo in this room. That you would hear this God who loves you, who created you, coming into this world that is first priority in ministry is to speak, follow me. Follow me, and I'll make you. The question then becomes, can you hear Jesus' voice by the Spirit echoing through this text in your heart? Can you hear him calling you by name? Follow me. Can you hear him coming into this room, into your house, into your heart, into your workplace and calling you by name? Come, follow me. Humbling himself, pursuing, calling, committing to you to make you into what his Desired outcome is to be. And then your heart leaps. Your, you all of a sudden hear and know that this is the one you've been waiting for. This is the one that has come to save and rescue. And without knowing everything that it entails, you're willing and ready to drop everything and, and leave and follow and trust. What does a response look like from you? What does a radical reorientation of your life look like? Is your whole life revolved around the person and work of Jesus? And if it is, this may be harder because it's going to go from a high level kind of repent and believe into a, how it does in this text, into on the ground Have you committed to be in a discipling community? Have you committed your life to go, if it looks like I'm slowing down, if it looks like I'm not going to reach by myself, if it looks like I will not forsake disciple relationships? Some of you are trying to push yourself along and get yourself farther along and you're not doing what Jesus has called you to do disciple you're you are content to just nameless faceless crowds like just posting your rants on Facebook you don't have to actually be in anybody's face just getting to a, pl- a stage or a platform or or just being a preacher but 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 have you given yourself to to getting into People, to slowing down, to loving the people, the family, the church, to being like Christ. That as you rise, others rise with you, that there is this idea of we're in this, as a people, dealing with each other's mess. I'm forced to forgive, I'm forced to, to, to repent, I'm forced to be known, can't wear masks. Committed to embodying the gospel, what does your life look like? Holy Spirit, would you take these words that are just on the page and make them real in the hearts, just like you came to these fishermen and said, Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men? Would you take that and speak it into the hearts of, of every person in this room? What does it look like for us to reorient our lives around you? Church, I can't give you that answer, but I can tell you this, that the Holy Spirit, I believe is working around this room in the hearts of His people showing us things we need to leave, showing us ways we need to re, showing us ways we need to humble ourselves and slow down, showing us ways that we need to adjust in our lives and because our whole lives need to be oriented around the person and work of Jesus not around ourselves Father I pray right now as we come to these tables as we sing these songs that this would be a place of prayer that your Holy Spirit would be speaking to the hearts of your people that you would be making this real and alive in our hearts and God each one of us our prayers are this Lord show us Show us what it means to leave, commit, and trust in you. Show us what it means to orient our lives around you, to follow you. You are our king. Church, here's how we're going to do this. The tables are open. We're going to sing. I want you, if you can, maybe with families, maybe people around you, or if you want to just by yourself, but just pray together. Maybe take communion together. But let the Spirit speak to you. Let's respond with humility. Let's respond immediately to this call that we'll drop everything and trust in Him. The tables are open. Let's respond in prayer and thanksgiving.